It was Benjamin Franklin who said that there are two certainties in life, death and taxes. While it may be possible to dodge the ATO, and even that is getting less and less likely, no one evades the truth that even the Queen herself has agreed with. No one lives forever on this earth. George Bernard Shaw noted the statistics on death are very impressive. One out of one people dies. We have but two choices in life in this matter of death. Face it or try to forget it. Some who think about death only do so superficially. A woman once told the wife of C.S. Lewis she did not worry about death because by the time she got old, she said, science would have done something about it. But that, of course, is merely an effort to escape. Science has not and science will not do anything about death. Death is a certainty that we have to face up to. This is the issue that Paul deals with in the passage we look at from 1 Thessalonians 4 this morning, which is related to a theological question that these believers had for Paul. Evidently, Paul had taught them that the Lord Jesus was going to reappear and take his people home with himself which is true. But they seemed to think that the event was so imminent that some of them had given up their jobs. This is why Paul wrote what he did in verses 11 to 2 of chapter 4, while others were totally unprepared for the experience of mourning and bereavement. Relatives and friends of theirs had died before Jesus had come back. They had not anticipated this. It took them by surprise. It greatly disturbed them. And so their questions to Paul were along these lines. What of the believer who has died before Jesus comes back? Would they be at a disadvantage? Would they miss the blessing of the second coming? Was it possible that they were lost? And was the fact that they had died a sign of God's judgment upon them? And again, had they been misled, not deliberately of course, into believing that Jesus would return so soon? And of course the bottom line question, when was Jesus coming back anyway? One thing Paul didn't want for these believers was that they be ignorant of any of the facts in relation to death and the return of Christ. So in this section of this letter, Paul set out to answer them. This part of Paul's letter is so crucial and central to the two letters that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Both of his letters are fairly short and both of them have a common theme of presenting something of the hope that believers have about what is to come in relation to the days ahead and even how death fits into the picture of what's to come. 
the fact that these believers were confused shouldn't surprise us at all. Though we've discovered from chapter 1 that the word of God came to them and was received by them, even then this did not solve the questions in their minds. The same holds true to the present day. The topic of the return of Jesus seems to have slipped from the high position it had once in the 80s and the 90s, from its almost fashionable status that everyone was talking about it, to the point of, well, we don't hear much about it these days. And maybe even, who cares if Jesus is coming back? And there can be a similar confusion exist because we tend not to think the topic through. So what Paul sought to do in writing to them and in doing so writing to us was twofold. First, he sought to straighten out that which was of concern in the minds of many and then he sought to examine the events surrounding the return of Jesus in greater detail for the comfort of the confused and for the concerned. Seems to me that such a passage is so vital and such aims are still so necessary. Some, of course, have no trouble in piecing together what the Bible says about the return of Jesus, but not all of us are in that boat. And to this group in particular, the second coming of Jesus is associated with confusion that can also be accompanied by a certain worry and concern. The text is helpful in sorting out what concerned the Thessalonians but also what concerns us. But in coming to look at these things this morning, I'm very much aware that it must be done so in balance. The danger that may befall us once we open the topic up and begin to explore it is we become so preoccupied with the things that are ahead that we may lose sight of him who is to come. We don't want to lose sight of Christ. It was Bishop Ryle, J.C. Ryle, who said way back in the 19th century, uncertainty about the date of the Lord's return is calculated to keep believers in an attitude of constant expectance and to preserve them from despondency. So it's important we know the truth that we might also remain expected, remain expectant and not be caught unprepared. First we note from verses 13 to 15 that Paul writes of the Lord's return and the role that believers are to play in it. The Lord's return and the role that believers are to play in it. As we've heard, some of these believers were concerned for believing friends and relatives who had died before the return of Jesus and that they would miss out on the benefits of the return of Jesus altogether. It's for this reason that Paul carefully explained that this is not the case at all. Verse 15 assures them and us that the Lord's coming will not exclude believers who have died from the celebrations. Rather, the opposite will be true, that those who have died in the Lord and so preceded the date of his return 
will enjoy and experience the presence of the Lord before those who are left alive when he comes again. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, he says, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Paul refers to those who have died as being asleep. In fact, in three successive verses, he refers to people who have died as being asleep. They've fallen asleep. This is not a new idea. Asleep as a euphemism for death is embedded in the Old Testament. The authors write about the patriarchs lying down and sleeping with their fathers. Daniel refers to those who sleep in the ground before they will rise. One of the most helpful stories, if you want to do some storytelling, is to tell the story of the incident of the dead girl, Jairus' daughter. The incident in which Jairus implored Jesus to save his daughter's life. By the time the Lord got to the little girl's house, she was dead. Luke, who was a physician, writes that her spirit had left her. She was dead. When Jesus walked into the room, the professional wailers were gathered around the bed, carrying on. Jesus said, she's just asleep. But they laughed at him. He made them all leave the room. He said to the little girl, Talitha kum, in Aramaic, which is, little girl, get up. And she got up. And Luke says, her spirit came back into her. And she arose. And Jesus called it sleep, even though she was dead, because to him it was not a permanent condition. She was just sleeping. She would wake. And this is a big snapshot of what the Lord Jesus is going to do in a big way when he returns. He is going to say, To everyone who is buried in their graves, I'm thinking of believers at the moment, he is going to say to their mortal bodies, get up, get up, and they will rise. But those who are dead are not in their bodies, are they? And they are with him in heaven. And so he is going to bring them with him when he comes. Jesus will come back with a loud command. That's the word Paul uses here. It's a military term for to call to attention. The angel is going to play the reveille and everyone is going to get up. Some of those who have died before all this miss out on nothing at all. Why? Because theirs is the better experience. Because they are with the Lord in heaven at the moment that he comes. And when he comes, he brings them with him. And theirs is the joy and the wonder of heaven now, and theirs is the privilege of accompanying the Lord. So he comes for his saints, but he comes with his saints in time. Therefore theirs is the greater privilege of knowing, even before the believers of earth, know that the time has come for his return. 
And so based on these truths, Paul could point out to the Thessalonians, they don't need to worry about those who had fallen asleep or died. To do so would only be to behave like the pagans who had no hope at all with regard to life after death. We're not to be like that. We have a hope that says the Lord Jesus will come for his people, but he will come with his people. Those who have gone ahead of us. Do you know someone who's gone ahead of you into heaven? I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. And we also learn here that when Jesus comes back, there will be believers alive on the earth. They will see him come, but they will also see him come with the many who have gone ahead of us into heaven, who are not dead, but very much alive. And our reunion is going to be with Jesus, but with his saints who have gone before us into his presence and they will appear with him. Second, we should note that Paul writes of the Lord's return and the certainty we should have of it. It's there in verse 16. The Lord himself will come down from heaven. It's one of the many clear indications of Scripture that what we've heard about the second coming is not a faint hope. It's not some fancy, but it's a rock-solid promise. It's there in the words of Jesus to the disciples in John 14, I will come again and I will take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. It's there in Acts chapter 1 in the words of the angels we heard this morning, this same Jesus whom you saw go into heaven, will come again. In fact, it could be added that the only people who doubt the second coming of the Lord in the Scriptures are those who are called scoffers, and we meet them in 2 Peter chapter 3, who even then, only after 50 years after Jesus went into heaven, were already claiming that the Lord had failed to keep his promise. It's upon the basis of what we have here in 1 Thessalonians 4 that our hope is expressed in this way, that the Christ who rose from the earth and now reigns over the earth will one day come again to the earth. And verse 16 reinforces that Jesus will return in such a way that the whole world shall know A particular viewpoint has often been expressed along these lines, that these verses describe what is known as a secret rapture. That is, when the church is caught up to be with the Lord before the beginning of the years of the Great Tribulation. That's one way that many people understand these verses. But to me and many others who read these verses, this return of Jesus so described here is no secret return that only believers know about. It doesn't plunge the world into chaos with aeroplanes without pilots and so on, but it's a return that will obviously be visible and something even the enemies of Jesus will see. Now there's more to this matter than just briefly putting it aside and I don't particularly want to get into a disagreement if you hold that point of view. And I've made a careful study over the years, having once held to that position myself. Except to say that the scriptures are consistent 
in describing the manner of Jesus' return. And it would be what we call eisegesis, reading into the text something that isn't there, rather than exegesis, garnering the meaning of the text to impose the rapture into this text here. When the overwhelming chorus of the scriptures refer to the fact that Jesus will return in his physical body with every eye upon him, with the sound of a trumpet, with dramatic signs in heaven and yet at the same time being unexpected and like a thief in the night. Those two are held together in tension. That's how I see the matter and happy to talk that through with you if that raises any particular questions. But again I stress, this is not a matter we break faith over. The Lord will return regardless of what you or I think and the certainty of it is what the scriptures assure us. Thirdly, in verses 17 and 18 about the Lord's return, Paul writes about the comfort that we should gain from it. We've already noted briefly that the immediate consequence of his return will be the resurrection of the dead. Some see this as only a resurrection of believers who will be raised bodily to go into heaven to join those already in heaven, leaving behind believers upon earth. But others see this resurrection that will follow Jesus' return as the resurrection that marks the end of all things. The resurrection that ends the millennium rule of Christ, which is now. The resurrection that will be for the just and the unjust when books are open and the sea and Hades and the earth will give up their dead and books will be read and examined to see who has their name in the Lamb's book of life. While this resurrection, however, is for everyone, it's not a resurrection to eternal life for everyone. Jesus taught this, John 5.29, when he said, Do not be surprised at this, the time is coming when all the dead will hear his voice and come out of their graves, some to rise and live, some to rise and be condemned. That's a topic for another day. And it's not my desire to go down that path right now for then we would skip over the obvious wonderful blessing that will be for our comfort in the believer's hope in returning the return of Christ. Verse 17 spells it out for us that we who are alive on earth at the time of his return will not only see him return with his saints and for his saints but we will be gathered up to the Lord and we will meet him in the air and we will always from then on be with the Lord. That last sentence is the one that makes it plain why we are called to patiently endure what we must now. It's this hope that the scriptures hold out to us as the great hope and the great comfort and encouragement of the believer. There's a reason why the book of Revelation is the last in the Bible. It not only points us ahead 
in part, but it completes the picture of we will always be with the Lord by adding that we will see him face to face and we will live with him and we will never again be separated from him. Never again face death, never again face tears, never again face sorrow or night for we will be with him and best of all, he will be with us. And this is our hope. We do not know yet what we shall be, says the Apostle John, but we know that when he appears we will be like him for we will see him as he is. Therefore, in the light of all this, Paul reminds his readers to what? To comfort and encourage one another with what? With these words. That we will be with the Lord forever. We will be with him as those who have died are now with him. These words comfort us. That all who have gone before us have not gone in vain. These words comfort us that our future and theirs are not separated but closely entwined. These words comfort us that nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. One day we will be with our Lord and the people we love forever. One day we'll be together. We will see in their redeemed bodies our loved ones who have gone before us. One day we'll step into eternity like Enoch who walked from this life into the next through a doorway marked death. And death, that thing we dread so much, death, that thing the world fears, will be for God's people just a mere transition from one to the other. And the Lord will be there to greet us and gather us into his house where there is warmth, and security, and nothing to fear. I've used this story in many a funeral sermon on John 14, but not all of you have heard it because you don't all come to funerals that I conduct. It's a story about John Todd. John Todd was very young when he became an orphan. Thankfully for him, his aunt offered to take him in and sent a servant from her house to come and get him. As they set out for her house, uh, John's question unveiled his fears. Will I like living with her? You will fall into good hands. Will she be in bed before we get there? Oh no, she'll wait up for you. When we get out of the woods, you'll see the light, her light in the window. Sure enough, as they neared the house, uh, John saw the lighted window and his aunt standing in the doorway When he reached the porch, she kissed him and said, Welcome home. John grew up in his aunt's care and became a pastor. Years later, he he was sent news of his aunt's impending death. He wrote to her these words, My dear aunt, years ago I left a house of death, not knowing where I was going. The ride was long, but the servant encouraged me. Finally, I arrived arrived to a new home and to your embrace. I was expected. I felt safe. 
Now your turn has come. I'm writing to tell you that someone is waiting up for you. Your room is all ready. The light is on and you are expected. As we bring this to a close, we should apply this wonderful text from the pen of Paul in two ways. For one thing, these words ought to clear away the ignorance about the return of Christ. And that ignorance is widespread ignorance. In general, God's people seem to know so little and care so little about the return of Christ and the order of events surrounding it. The Bible tells us that the return of Jesus will signify the end of the world, followed by the resurrection of all, followed by the judgment of all at the great white throne, followed by the casting of Satan and his minions and all who do not believe into the fires of hell, followed by the creation of the new heavens and the new earth and the ultimate salvation of all those who belong to Christ. It's vital that we have a grasp on these things and the order in which they will come because ignorance will prove costly and we will miss out on the blessing that is there for our comfort and our strengthening and also understanding the world and what's happening. But in a greater sense, these words should define our attitude towards life and death. Remember how Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If death is meeting with Christ, then have we ever ever any reason to be anxious or fearful? Is there any reason to fear in the valleys of life and the trials that come upon us that somehow will be separated from Christ? If Christ is Lord even in death, if he could raise that little girl, then surely he can handle the trials that even precede death because we see death as something greater than the trials that lead up to it. And we can lift our heads high knowing that the timing of his return is the day of our redemption and the day of glory he will share with his people. Yes, Benjamin Franklin was right. None of us can escape taxes or death. And the Queen was right. None of us will live forever on this earth. But the the believer has nothing to fear about death. Through the love of God our Saviour, all will be well. And that is not said lightly. This is no vain hope. This is no pie in the sky when we die. This is what the scriptures tell us. The eternal prospects of the believer are not only bright, they are glorious. And they are bound up with his coming for his saints and his coming with his saints. And this hope is yours if your hope is in Christ. Take him at his word. He will save you in life and he will save you in death. No one else has the keys to life and to death, to heaven and to hell. 
and by putting your faith in him, regardless of when he comes, this hope can be a living hope that can keep you now and forever. Will you do that? Will you do that today? It's most important. Let's pray. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyelids close in death, hide me now, my refuge be. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Heavenly Father, we have such a wonderful hope Such a wonderful, comforting passage. We will be with you forever. That's our destiny. You will glorify us. Not that we deserve anything. We didn't deserve to be justified. We didn't deserve to be put right with you. We don't deserve to be changed every day. We certainly don't deserve to be glorified and given new bodies and given permission to enter right into your holy presence and be there forever and never, ever be removed. What a great hope we have. What a great saviour we have. What a great salvation we enjoy. And what a great wonder it is that Christ is coming again. As we put our hope and our trust in him again today, may you grant comfort where that comfort is so desperately needed. Many of us have lost loved ones and we are like the Thessalonians, wondering will we ever see them again. We thank you for the hope we have that those who are belonging to the Lord Jesus are so forever, that you never let them go, never once. So prepare us, encourage us, comfort us, equip us that we might share the wonders of the hope we have of the return of Christ who saves us forever. In Jesus' name we pray.